Hello from Cyberry and Delinea, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cyberry podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cyberry.it. From all of us at Cyberry and Delinea, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm Joe Carson, the host for the episode, I'm Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. And it's a pleasure to be back. I'm really excited about today's episode because we have an awesome and amazing guest on the show. And today I am joined with Jen Ellis. So passing over to Jen. Jen, do you want to give us a bit of an introduction about who you are, what you do, and how you get into the industry? Sure. And thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's always nice to have a, ch- a chance to uh, to nerd out with friends. I like it. Um, I don't know how much other people want to listen to that, but I enjoy it. Um, so yeah, so I'm Jen Ellis. Um, I have uh, a fairly unusual role in the security industry, I think. Um, I sort of sit at the intersection of community, public policy, um, and and sort of awareness. So my goal, if you will, is to create change, right? Mm-hmm. I basically have a view that cybersecurity is a societal issue because connected technologies are in everything that we do. Absolutely. And so the risk that comes with connected technologies relates to everything that we do. And we've seen this play out massively in the past couple of years through the pandemic as we've mm-hmm. seen hospitals being attacked and um <clears throat> Just last week, we saw the Royal Mail get attacked. You've never seen attacks against critical infrastructure sort of ramping up over the past several years. And so my question is, like, how do you create change that reduces risk for everybody on a societal level rather than just being about reducing risk for those who can afford to buy solutions? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think the answer to that is you have to you have to create behavioral change amongst Uh, large scale like technology uh, manufacturers, buyers and operators. And so that's going to be a combination of like the top down, which is where the public policy piece comes in and then the bottom up, which is where that sort of groundswell of awareness and of peer to peer um, education and of standards adoption all comes in. Um, And I sit sort of in the middle of those things trying to trying to create connection points, I guess. In the so, yeah. toughest part, <laughs> the toughest <laughs> part of the industry. I don't so. think so. I think I sit in the eye of the storm, right? So everything where I am is calm. <laughs> everything around me is chaos. Um, it's definitely an interesting spot to sit in. Absolutely. And just to get so I mean, absolutely for you for yourself. I mean, this is my always my favorite part of the week is is recording these episodes. So because oh, yeah. it does get me to nerd out, it gets me to talk to great friends and people in the industry, and just also just kind of sometimes get different perspectives and things. Because yeah. when you're when you're doing your in your own rut. You always get stuck in that kind of that continuous kind of feed, and for me, this is the the greatest part of my week, where it's basically allowing me to just get a bit of the view from a, a different part of the world or a different part of the industry that I would typically yes. normally do in my day day job. So it's always one of my fun parts, and for me, so I've always been sitting. So I, I you know, in what you do, I've always been from the techie side of things in yeah. the industry, and I remember, you know, a few quite a few years ago, it's probably going back about ten years ago. Even before that, I, even late 2009 or so, um, I started getting involved in this little thing called GDPR and stuff like that. And I've heard of that, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and doing the technical reviews. And I was always kind of brought in from the technical side, not so much yeah. the policy side, but I did get a lot of exposure to those who were making decisions. 
And you know, when I was looking at, G- I never forget GDPR because it was always one of those things where, uh, when it, you know, it was trying to get twenty eight countries to work together <laughs> and oh, yeah. come to the same conclusion. Yeah. And the moment you introduce many different countries and societies, it gets more complex and yeah. more and more complex. Um, so you know, then I remember you know doing some policies and working with different governments and different agencies, and it was always a one way street. It was always me sharing information and yeah. then not hearing anything back. So can can you tell me about some, you know, you've been working a lot of these areas in advocacies yeah. and bringing policies and bringing governments and industry together. Uh, can you share some of the task force and things that you worked on? That yeah, were interesting? sure. I mean, actually, like, so on the point that you're making, like, if I can go into story time a little bit and kind mm-hmm. of take a step back about how I ended up in policy, because I didn't start working in policy. And in fact, <clears throat> I don't think anybody would have predicted that this would have been where I, where I would end up going. Right. And and <laughs> for me, so I was I was living and working in the U.S., uh, as you can probably tell from my accent, <laughs> I'm a Brit, but um, I but I was living and working in the U.S., um, for a, uh, a, a security company. Mm-hmm. And I worked really closely with the research team I had helped, um, uh, helped champion and build a research function within Rapid7. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there you go, Rapid7, get some free advertising. Um, <laughs> and and worked really, really closely with the researchers on, and they were doing technical research, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and then our then head of research got threatened with legal action uh, for a piece of it was port scanning research mm-hmm. and it was a legit project i mean you know we'd, we'd put out findings we had not we had a, a, a who is lookup that uh, enabled you to opt out mm-hmm. um and we honored all opt-out requests um it, it was as bona fide as a research project could look right and and he got yep. threatened with legal action for three months and at the end of which he said you know i'm glad that this has been dropped uh but it took a huge toll and i i don't know how much i really want to do research anymore when when i'm when i'm mm-hmm. dealing with this and i and 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 in the in the meantime, I had looked into it and found out that he wasn't the only one. That lots of researchers felt that this was the case that they were getting threatened with legal action under either um, the U.S. anti-hacking law, which is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, okay, yeah, or a state Act, equivalent yeah. uh, of said um, anti-hacking mm-hmm. law, or the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA. Um, and so one of these things was being used basically to to frighten off a lot of um, researchers mm-hmm. um, and threaten them. And I kind of started to really think about it. And, you know, it's interesting you say that you come from the technical point of view and I really don't, right? Like I, mm-hmm. um, I have a really strong passion for the intersection of technology and society, but I'm not particularly technical myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, which I know is a huge crime in security and I apologize sincerely. <laughs> it it uh, is not. I won't make it. Social media. Yes. I, I think that the, the <laughs> social media community um, do come harsh in those who may not have a technical background, but you don't need a technical, you don't need to be a developer. It depends you don't how need you're applying technical. yourself, right? And it, what you're claiming you're ownership applying. and Absolutely. knowledge of. But I mean, yeah, we, so, so we need to be better at communication. I, so I completely, I can 100% agree, 100% agree. So, so I, you know, I was thinking about this and I sort of ended up in this view that security research to me obviously is fundamental to the research community, right? It, it underpins everything that we do. It underpins all mm-hmm. of our knowledge. But I think it's actually a way bigger issue than that. Because here's my view is that I may not be super technical, but I have every right to make an informed decision decision to manage mm-hmm. my risk and to balance how much risk matters to me compared to other things. So like mm-hmm. when I'm buying a new phone, I might go, 
you know, I really care about the best camera. Or I might go, um, I really care about having the same uh, platform as all of my family so that we can integrate things. But I might go, what I really care about more than anything is not being put at risk and not having my mm-hmm. data shared or being um, hackable. And and that informs the choices I make over which phone I buy. To yep. me, for vendors to make that choice for me by withholding information is really anti-customer. And I th- and so to me, it mm-hmm. became a consumer rights issue. This, this whole thing around security yep. research became a consumer rights issue. And so I got really indignant and I learned all about the CFAA and the DMCA. And I, and I went to the CEO of the company and I said, this is a huge problem. It's affecting our industry, but it's also f- affecting our society. And he said, you should go do something about that. And I looked at him and laughed and went, are you insane? Um, and I was like, I, so number one, I'm not a lawyer. Number two, I've never done anything on policy before. And I don't, I, number three, I'm British and I don't know how the US law system works. And like, he looked at me and he said, is it the right thing to do? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, then you should go do it. And so I went off and I don't know if you've ever seen that Family Guy episode where Peter goes to to Washington, D.C. and he ends up working with a smoking lobbyist (laughs) and he's like in his dress with his little hat and he's doing twirlies. I basically was that. I was like in D.C., like wide eyed, innocent, going to these government buildings, had no idea what the hell I was doing, getting lost everywhere I went. And um, and and. I went and met with staffers on mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill and they would say to me, it's so fantastic to meet you. You're the first person we've ever spoken to from the security community. <laughs> and I would be sat there going, like, if you go to congress.gov and you put in cybersecurity, then the list of, of bills that get returned that have some cybersecurity component in them. And I'd be like, you guys are actively legislating on cybersecurity, and this is back in the days when they were mm-hmm. trying to pass the Cyber Information Sharing Act, CISA, yep. 2015, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I said, like, you're actively working on encryption backdoors and hackback and um, prosecution authorities and uh, cyber information sharing mm-hmm. and um, breach notification and cyber hygiene, and you're not talking to people in the security industry. Like, who are you talking to? <laughs> and they said, oh, well, we hear from the banks. And we hear from the defense contractors, you know, um, and we hear from big tech, Mm -hmm. but we don't hear from the security players at all. And I was horrified, horrified. And so it it became a mission for me, you know. It's not a bit shocking because a lot of InfoSec people are, you know, they're always concerned about, you know, how much they interact with the government because some of the things that they're doing. So there's always that that wall that they've built up over years. So Completely uh, agree. But it's needed to come down. That wall has needed has, to, to be demolished. And so, so. and so, you know, to, so like that clock, if you look at that, it was probably like nine or 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. right? I don't know, because the weird vacuum of time that was the pandemic means I, I feel like I stopped counting before the pandemic and I haven't started <laughs> counting again. Um, but yeah, so it was probably like nine or 10 years ago. And then uh, since then, the 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 
the landscape has changed so mm-hmm. hugely. So at that time, we really didn't have a lot of nonprofits that were doing anything around cybersecurity. And when I say nonprofits, in this sense, what I'm talking about is like the kind that interact with governments. Mm-hmm. So you have trade associations and you have think tanks and you have research yeah. divisions and you have, you know, all sorts of civil society. And there were very few that were really doing anything about cybersecurity. A few that had like focused on privacy were doing a little bit mm-hmm. here and there. Um, the FF, who I know are very beloved in the security community, yep. um, they were doing little pockets, but like they don't really, uh, they don't lean forward as policy engagement being their number one thing, although I think they were a bit mm-hmm. more active back then maybe. Um, and so now, you know, fast forward the clock to now, there's actually quite a few of them. It's quite, mm-hmm. It is quite a, a big, a big section. And one part of that was that the Hewlett Foundation, um, mm-hmm. the, uh, what are they, what's their full name? Mm, no, it's not, it's not flowing out of my mouth right now. I'll, I'll have to think about what they're <laughs> called, but they're, they're, you know, they're a bit like if people are familiar with the Gates Foundation, they're, they're like that, yeah. right? They're the huge mm-hmm. endowment and they find sort of worthy causes to, to make, to give money to, and they created a endowment specifically for cybersecurity. They said, like, mm-hmm. for this set ma- um, number of years, we're going to fund projects that help advance security on a societal level. And so that meant that a lot more nonprofits could start kind of engaging in mm-hmm. it. And and that's helped with what I would call kind of like the democratization of cybersecurity, because before that, yeah. the way the governments talked about it, it was all about national security. And national security, as we know, tends to be something that gets talked about behind closed doors in very yeah. closed groups. You know, it's very invitation only. Or classified. It's all exactly. classified. It's, it, it's not for public view. Um, right. You had to go through a whole procedure to be able to get involved or see any of the Absolutely. data. So it's not something that works on a c- civilian level. Oh, exactly. Um, so it's, it's, it's very kind of, kind of yeah. let's say, you know, behind, behind the closed doors, as you mentioned, you don't get, you, you get to see it. Right. And then, and then I think a few different things happened. So one, there was a massive upscale in the level of cybercrime. And that made it something that people had an awareness of. It was something they saw in headlines. It affected their lives. And it also, and so that moved it into a sort of civilian domain much more as something Mm -hmm. that people talked about. It also meant that governments had to start thinking much more about how are we going to respond to this and what are we going to do? You know, there was a... there was a prediction that I saw last year that cybercrime was going to cost the global economy last year alone mm-hmm. $7 trillion. Yep. And to put that into context, the GDP of the UK is about 26 Yep, it's it's bigger than so, many countries. Yeah, it's, so it's insane. Yet. It's insane. It and 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 so like um governments had to respond, right? They had mm-hmm. to come up with a response. And in that in that year of um of 2021 when we'd already had such a <laughs> such a terrible yeah. year the year before um, the one that didn't exist the one that we can't remember <laughs> right exactly i feel the same way about about 20 and 21 but we had that run of like colonial and then two weeks later hse and then a week after that jbs and so within a month you had three of the biggest most high profile yeah. attacks ransomware attacks against national critical infrastructure or not national but critical infrastructure yeah, supply chains very very big supply chains which exactly you, know, you have this domino effect there's once once one's impacted everything that's downstream oh, yeah. can no longer do business or function 100 percent. and so. then we had kaseya maybe yeah. like i don't know two months later and so you know i think what we've seen over the past few years is a huge sort of shift in how we talk about this stuff and how governments mm-hmm. approach it. But 
what still happens is there's an access problem. And we exist in echo chambers, right? We talk about this a lot in security because I think in security, people are quite aware of it. Like yeah, we, 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 we're used to working in silos. That's that we, we have these, you know, we, we work in our own little silo as long as it doesn't impact everything else. Because yeah. in the background, we were techies. We, we like communicating with, with technology and not so much people. <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's true. But I will say, like, I've worked in a lot of sectors of B2B tech and I've never worked in a sector that is such a community as this. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually, when we say that, what we actually mean is it's multiple communities layered over, over the top of each other. Right. There's yes. like the threat intel community and the pen testing community. And um, and mm-hmm. and there are, you know, there's blue team and purple team, and red team. And um, and they all sort of layer on top and mix together. Mm-hmm. But it is a community. I have never seen a B2B tech sector that has as many events in its annual calendar as security. Security people, <laughs> for people who who exist online, security people love to get together in person. Love it. Yep. Absolutely love it. And I mean, and and as a community, we may have a certain reputation for partying hard and, and, and you know, that, that might factor into why people like it. But I don't just think it's that. I think it's also the fact that people who work in cybersecurity often, it's a real passion. And that ability to come together and learn from each other and and do what we're doing right now, which is just nerd out together and exchange, you know, war stories, I think is just a really big thing for people in security to do. And so we have this really amazing, super active mm-hmm. community, but it's an echo chamber. It's it's yeah. a bubble. And and we all sit in it and and actually the the, the government sector is its own bubble. It's a whole mm-hmm. other bubble. It's a whole other echo chamber. And so when the government comes to being like in a position where they've got to create policy on something, they know that they need to talk to experts. They know that. They actually want to talk to experts, but they actually don't know how to break into the echo chamber. <laughs> and because we are so bombarded with messages every day, we also don't really know what to pay attention to, to go, okay, that's the thing I should respond to. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how to break into the government echo chamber. So you've got these like bubbles. I, I'm like now describing them as if we're basically sort of terraforming Mars and we're living in our bubbles. <laughs> um, and that's a little bit what it's like, right? It's like we're all trying to do the same thing and work together towards a common goal, but we're mm. sitting in these bubbles and we don't actually know how to reach each other's bubbles. And I think that's where things like, you know, task forces or working groups or um, policy groups can really be helpful. I think some of the events that we have mm. in the sector can help give people access. We had... Um, we had the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, which is the UK mm-hmm. uh, ministry that basically sets public policy around cybersecurity. Um, I, you know, I we, we sort of call them the any other business uh, ministry because they cover so <laughs> such a wide range of things. Which, by the way, if you're trying to cover, if you're trying to follow what they're putting out about cybersecurity, mm-hmm. super hard, right? Because you go to their website and you got to way through museums and theatre and sports, mm-hmm. and then. And then even when you get to tech, you've got to wade through like, you know, 15 internet things and AI and quantum before you get to cybersecurity. Not that those topics aren't relevant. They are, but they're not necessarily going to be focused on security. So it's actually really hard to kind of keep up with what they're doing. But DCMS came to Black Hat Europe Mm -hmm. um, in December and they gave a a talk, like a sort of a 101 on here's what's happening in policy and how you can get involved. And I think those kinds of opportunities, those kinds of moments Mm -hmm. are super, super powerful. 
Um, and they give people the opportunity to create those relationships or start creating them. DEF CON did the yeah. same thing last summer. You know, they had this, this policy at DEF CON track. Yeah. And they had people from all over the world come. And they've been doing it slowly. DEF CON has been great because they've started, it all started, of course, with the voting yes. machines. They started bringing in the, the voting machines. They started having actually senators and in Congress speaking I will, I will at say the event actually, as well. It started before the voting village. <laughs> yeah. It started way before the voting village, mm. um, having so. having the govies come over. Um, and there have Attend, been some really... Attending in person, yes. Yeah, yeah how, there, I mean, because like, you know, I think... I think um, Congressman Langevin, who um, is retiring and who we are all going to miss desperately because he's been an incredible, incredibly positive force for cybersecurity um, in Congress in the US. Um, he has now been out to, to DEF CON uh, a mm-hmm. few times. And I think the first time that he came, he actually did a trip with Will Hurd. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that was that was sort of organized, I think, at the time by the Atlantic Council. And so they've mm-hmm. been these pockets of activity and opportunity. But now we're seeing a sort of much greater buildup of momentum and groundswell. And I mm-hmm. think um, I, I, I honestly still think we've got a way to go. There's still so much more that can be done to kind yeah. of create those connection points, because I think the vast majority of people who, who are listening to this podcast are probably thinking, like, I've got no idea how to get involved. Um, yeah, I remember my first. Yeah, I remember my first involvement was you know I did a lot of advisory. So from my kind of background in what I did with previous companies, that I would get a lot of government agencies coming and asking for technical advice or yeah. architecture design. You know, yeah. whether it was to do with patch management or whether it was to do with vulnerability assessments or to do with migration processes and so forth, and they would come. And my always thing was that I would you know. I wouldn't know how it was being used or where it was intended to be used. They're yeah. just coming and saying, with these limitations of you know scope that I was allowed to be informed right? Yeah, I would provide my expertise back. It was, it was, <laughs> and then you'd hear nothing back. I'd hear nothing. <laughs> For me, it was when you were actually talking about yeah. these little bubbles. It just got me thinking about. It's almost like the movie Contact, where I've sent these signals <laughs> out into space, and I'm sitting here with my satellite dish waiting for responses back and years go by and I never hear a thing. And yeah. you get the point it was like, did it, was I helpful? You know, did I, <laughs> did I, you know, cause we, we always want the feedback. We want to know what we yep. did. Did it, yep. was it adding value? And that happened yep. for so often. Um, and I think I remember one of the, there was an event I, I attend this uh, uh, kind of the cert events um, where yep. it's all about instant response. And we hear the, you hear what worked and what didn't work. And we hear some of the, the major incidents. Yeah. And it was the first time I remember we had a round table. It was law enforcement and it was uh, ethical research, security researchers, hackers, all on the yeah. same team. And that was yep. the first time where we started having back and forward interaction, where we started hearing what they were proposing. And it was the first thing, and it was probably around 2014, I think, at that point. Yeah. And I think that's where I started seeing slow changes happening where we yeah. started having much more communication. And to the point, one of the things that, you know, I think um, the last time I met with Chris Krebs, uh, I think it was maybe RSA last year. This and is I said director to Krebs, former director dire- of the Former CISA. director uh, Krebs from CISA. <laughs> and I, I was, I was because that was the first time when, when Chris went into CISA yeah. um, and established CISA, was, was, it was the first time I started seeing bi-directional communication. Yeah. And it was first time you started seeing communication proactively coming so out. So it depends, right? It depends on the government you look at. So when Chris went in, uh, so 
Mm, so Scissor was born out of what was MPPD, right, at, at DHS. Uh, for those who don't spend all their time talking to governments, yes, they really, really, really like alphabet soup. So um, I'm not going to be able to remember what MPPD stood for. It was something like National Prote- something Protector. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it became Scissor, which is the... Yeah. Um, uh, critical infrastructure, no, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, nice. and as part of the Department of Homeland Security in the US, right? Um, and MPPD um, becoming CISA happened, I want to say, in about 2018 ish. It was around 2018. Yeah, it was around, the, it was not long after the elections. Um, right. The, and, the, the so, yeah. And not super long before that was when NCSC, the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK was formed, right? Yeah, Where yeah. the UK basically said, we're going to, we've got all these different parts of us dealing mm-hmm. with security and we're going to kind of pull together and, and centralize it under this, this one organization, NCSC. And one of NCSC's core tenants has always been transparency, mm-hmm. which is hilarious, right? Because they come out of GCHQ. Um, And so that I think is actually why they made it like this is a core tenant for us is like we're not gonna we don't want to have the reputation that GCHQ Mm -hmm. has of being about secrets. That's a reputation they necessarily have, but we don't sit in the same spot. And so Mm -hmm. we're going to we're going to be transparent um, about what we're seeing and, and how things are going and that kind of thing. And I think a really big part of the reason they did that was because. Um, when NCSC started, they identified 16 core areas of activity, mm-hmm. and basically yep. the private sector was involved in every single one of them, right? They, they basically were able to execute and move quickly through partnerships with the private sector mm-hmm. and everything that they were doing involved that and so they kind of had this view of like well if we're partnering with you we have to tell you how things are going we have to share that mm-hmm. information with you yep. and actually you know we live in a democratic nation we represent the people we should share that information broadly and we should improve the general level of knowledge in the security community yep. when Chris that's, how you build, in, that's how you build trust that's it is whole, how you build trust, it's a whole and trust, trust yeah. is something that is massively lacking between mm-hmm. the public and private sectors in the u.s where there has been yeah. a sort of cultural norm of the private sector not trusting the government i think you can actually date it back to when you know they were paying taxes to the british government right so like they've never yeah. really got past <laughs> this view that you can't trust the government um and so whether they're a, um, an overseas government or a, an in-country government um and so chris i think when he started had a, a strong point of view of like one wanting to be able to build mm-hmm. that trust and build that collaboration yes. because he recognized the value of it and so he i think paid very close attention to what ncsc was doing mm-hmm. and what was working and what wasn't and started to and i'm not saying like you know one of the things that chris and i talked about a lot and, and i've talked to mm-hmm. various people at ncsc about a lot as well is that you can't really compare scissor and ncsc because yeah. it is an apples to oranges comparison what the uk deals with in terms of scope and scale is considerably less complex than what the US yeah. is dealing with. And, and you're not having to deal with the, the multi, multiple states uh, legislation exactly, across it. Right? That, that, that gets a whole level of complex. You know, you've got a federal side, which is one thing, but when you have to deal with states at the local level, that changes right. the whole. Absolutely. And I mean, In the UK, you, know, you, you don't have to deal with that. So. No, and you are talking about a population of hmm. sort of 70-ish million versus, I think, 320 million or Three, something? Yeah, so around just over 300 million, yeah. And so, like, that's, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty huge difference in, in terms of scale. And then this this relationship with the private sector was a hugely mm-hmm. significant difference. And I think, you know, what's interesting is if you look at those years, 
you've seen NSA launch a public-private partnership scheme. Mm-hmm. You've seen Scissors actually really, really lent into it. So even Scissor Post-Krebs has continued to do that leaning in mm-hmm. on how you build that and has and has built uh, various schemes that involve the private sector. Um, working with the with the government, and I think you know we will see more of these develop over time. I think it's really important yeah. that we do. It's it, they are they are very Even, valuable. Yeah. Even the FBI, I've seen a lot of cooperation yeah. FBI, which is surprising. I remember meeting with uh, you know I, I doing all some of the events and we we cooperate together and we we, we exchange. And it was their view was that you know we we've struggled to do this because the FBI is so used to asking questions and and, and listening, yeah. <laughs> and not so much yeah. sharing. <laughs> and 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 of course that's you know even even within states within different departments yeah. and stuff that's always been a challenge. And they're they're now getting to the point where it's a whole different type of culture that they're also it's a cultural change for them to also yeah. start actually communicating and and having bi-directional communication. Um, and I think I think Scissor really kind of was the step up, and were they going to look to that direction as a kind of one that was kind of you know making those steps? But I think they're slowly coming around. I think I think it's a great thing because it's how we build. It's going back to that trust side of things. It's how you build a trust and how you you know that value is being created. Yeah, I mean, I think you need in order to be able to do that, you need to have a sea change at the very top to say that this kind of sharing is okay. And I think actually, if you go back to before. Because uh, remember that Scissor started in 2018, but the the mm-hmm. groundwork that was laid to create Scissor started far earlier, right? And mm-hmm. and so actually, you can trace it back to the Obama administration and and some of the changes that were made through the National Security Council and mm-hmm. the recommendations that came out of that White House around how you um, how you create better partnership. Um, and it's interesting to me that even though the the Trump administration massively downsized the level of investment mm-hmm. in cybersecurity and, and took away various roles mm-hmm. in the White House administration around cybersecurity, that the good work continued. And it is through the leadership of people like Chris Krebs and others. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, is it, I, is, think, I think is it's it important. Yeah, to, to your point, from a leadership perspective. I know that Estonia has been doing this for many years. We've, we've you know, had know, a CIO right. and we've had yeah. a digital. So they've been looking, they've always had somebody who was the central person who would coordinate everything and, and have that. Trans- it's always been about transparency and communicating uh, with the citizens and, and uh, making sure that the public was informed. Um, and I've seen other, other countries starting to have some type of security leadership. You know, they, they, of course, they've had the advisors and stuff in the White House. Is it really you know, time to have a, you know, somebody you know, like a CIO type of role that you know every government should have that allows them to have more coordination between multiple agencies is is it something that we need to have you know or, or is that just kind of giving somebody so. too much complication well it's not that it's just that the challenge i have is i've never met an organization that defines the role cio the same let mm. alone government that does it right yeah. the u.s actually has cios um the the British government, I believe, has CIOs, hmm. but they are tra- treated as very much operational roles, not policy not the roles, and the policy right? side. Yeah. Um, and so it depends what you're trying to achieve by by having mm-hmm. that role. I think if what you're talking about is like a cyber czar, a cyber czar is what, what I'm more referring to. Somebody's so more... I think that exists in various different places in various hmm. different roles, right? Like so, um, this year. Not this year, because we're now in a new year. Uh, I'm still in the in the time vortex. Uh, <laughs> last year we saw, uh, and actually now that I say I'm in the time vortex, it might not even be last year, but I think it was last year. We saw the introduction of um, uh, 
the Office of the National Cyber Directorate, right? And we mm -hmm. saw the introduction of, of the Cyber Directorate role, which is basically a cyber czar. Mm -hmm. And so that's Chris Inglis um, yes. yeah. uh, at the moment. Um, and I, I don't think it's a big secret that he's planning on exiting, um, and so it'll be someone else soon. Um, but Chris is there right now, and uh, they only hire Chris's to work on security at senior levels in, in the <laughs> Um But yeah, so uh, I think, you know, and I think when you look at the Obama administration, um, he had a couple of people who mm. had very, very senior roles. So Michael Daniel was one who was his um, chief sort of advisor and sat on NSC, mm. um, the National Security Council. There is a question about what ONCD and NSC, how they go together or how they differ. Mm -hmm. And I think the White House is still figuring out exactly how to answer that question in a very crisp, articulate way. Um, okay. And some of it, I think, will be revealed by what the new... Um, national cyber strategy that they're working on that they're going to bring mm -hmm. out will be I, I can give you my very uh, rough explanation Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> NSC, that's, that's NSC is not focused on cybersecurity mm -hmm. purely uh, mm -hmm. they are the National Security Council so they cover any topic relating to national security that mm -hmm. needs to be focused on or looked at from a White House level right that, that incredibly yeah. senior level and they advise the president on it um, the ONCD is specifically focused on cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And so you can expect that they will work very, very, very much hand in hand. But mm -hmm. ONCD should, should, I think, be the ones that go super deep. And then they advise NSC. Um, and then there's also questions about how ONCD sits separately to CISA. I would say... Mm -hmm. Scissor's focus is is mainly critical infrastructure piece, but also yeah. Scissor is very operational, right? They're about doing things to take action to protect, yeah. right? Either by driving better preparedness and awareness. Well, yeah, even even the best practices for ransomware and you know exactly. some of the the major right. vulnerabilities, you know, they've become exactly. almost like the you know the alerts for, you know, CVEs now. Right, the KEV list, right? The yes. known exploited vulnerabilities list, yeah. which if you guys are working in cybersecurity and you're not aware of KEV, go check it out. Um, known exploited vulnerabilities, mm. uh, it's getting longer and longer, start now. Yeah. Um, but, but they're looking at, and they offer free services for certain types mm -hmm. of organizations. So they're really looking at the operational piece with a heavy focus on, on critical infrastructure. Whereas mm -hmm. ONCD is sort of across everything on a strategy level. Um, and you know, it—it's it, a big old government, right? They have lots of different yeah. so, pockets. Of things. So, so would they, they be looking at something? Yeah. So, would they, would they be looking at something similar to what, for example, you know, the EU came out with, you know, basically uh, about the ratings for you know cybersecurity for certain IoT devices, you know, right. um, such as also what you have in the UK, where they were coming up with the policy about not having you know default weak credentials right, as part right, of right. you know. Is, is, is that what they yeah, would be responsible so, for? Or? Uh, um, yeah, uh, yes and no. So uh, the way that in the US it works is if you are looking at creating policy, mm -hmm. you're looking at Congress. Congress creates legislation. Oh, so they, they could right? legislate the, the law. They just, they and then, create, right, yeah. they create the law, right. But then you can have laws that basically get created by Congress that then say, X entity is responsible for figuring out the details, right? Mm -hmm. And you see this happen. So, like, for example, the US passed a law called the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act. Mm -hmm. 
And what it was basically doing was saying, hey, we recognize there's a lot of risk around IoT. We want to be able to change things. We're going to use the immense buying authority that the U.S. government has as a huge entity and say that if you are a U.S. government entity, when you buy IoT, you have to look for certain things. Mm -hmm. And because we want the law to stay up to date and not time out really quickly, and because we recognize that as Congress, we're not experts in this, what we're going to say is that NIST... Uh, they are going, NIST, who are basically the president's advisors on like tech, the, the very yeah. technical aspects of what should be done. Defining They're the standards, standards bodies. Yeah. yeah. Standards, yeah. Um, that NIST is going to come out with the what it is that, that, and they're responsible for keeping it updated, what it is mm-hmm. that, that these government entities should be looking for. But we as Congress will pass the law that says governments have to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, that's so, so you've got two areas you've got you've got congress passes like new, new law you've got then uh, s- specific sectoral or um or relevant agencies that have a specific role who then can help with the regulation so say that mm-hmm. you are the fda right yep. you are in charge of coming out with what the requirements are for medical device security pre mm-hmm. and post market um and so you've got those bits and then the last area is um, the White House um, and its administration can issue rules within the framework that already exists. So that's where you get executive orders, right? Executive orders yes. can't pass new laws, but they can leverage what already exists. And part of that also means um, that you get like scissor can do something like they can issue something called a binding operational directive a bod mm-hmm. and that basically is them saying we as the cybersecurity um sort of guardians operational guardians can go to any civilian federal agency and say you must do x you must have a mm-hmm. coordinated vulnerability disclosure program you must have um, DMARC. These are all things that we yep. have seen. Um, you know, one of the ones they're working on at the moment is around supply chain, right? They they pushed mm-hmm. that out a while back, and and now we're seeing some of the stuff come out from it. So, um, so that's sort of how the structure works there. But it differs country by country, right? And in yep. who does what in the UK, it's a it's a different setup. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the key here is to make sure that you always have. I think you always want to have the people who are creating the policy, the people who are in the government as like the technical leads, and then the sort of the third like branch needs to be mm-hmm. the people who work with this stuff day in, day out, either engaging directly or through advocacy initiatives like yeah. task forces or nonprofits or whatever which, it is. Yeah, which is one of the next things we're going to ask, you know, all of this is cross country. And, you know, yeah. cyber crimes are, you know, that's the thing is when we work in cybersecurity, it's not within the national borders. Very yeah. seldom do you get criminals basically operating. You may yeah. get certain elements of it, you know, you know, doing like, you know, uh, tax fraud and you know credit card fraud because yeah. of course that has to have some local element at, at some point. Uh, but when you get into things like ransomware, which is all almost you know always cross border, that you're dealing with criminals in other countries where it may not be considered a crime in these countries. Um, and one of the things you know when I also look at things like you know the complications as well is similar to EU. One of the things that what tends to happen is, is for example the EU AI Act. Uh, which is all about the artificial intelligence acceptable use and so forth and policies and strategies. 
that in Talon, we have the Talon Digital Summit, which is every year, which is then, you know, all countries coming together. And what I end up finding is a lot of cases, whatever country has taken the most progress in those policies, that everyone else has come and they, they want to hear, can you share the policies with us? And they just clone them and modify them slightly to work in their own own society. So sometimes it accelerates it when you have some of those corporations and they're willing to share the policies yeah. and allow them to be modified. Um, but it seems that how, how is things like the joint we, ransomware task force working? I mean, um, but the thing is, right, we want to see this happen because hmm. what you don't want in a... What, what we want to support is a continuation or expansion of the global digital economy, right? Because it actually yeah. benefits everybody and it allows countries that have traditionally uh, perhaps had a harder time creating opportunity mm-hmm. to create opportunity. So we want to see this continue. And in which case, for global entities doing business around the world, they don't want to have 57 different things yeah. that they have to learn about, right? Like in the US, there are 57 different breach notification rules for each of the states and territories. <laughs> Great that everybody has one. And actually, for the most part, the core elements are very similar. And you end up choosing the most. Different enough that you have to like go and look at all of them, or at least look at each one for the areas where you operate. And wouldn't a federal one be nice because then it would stop that from having to happen? So so we have the same thing right in Europe where You know, we have this huge complexity over having multiple member states. There's a difference between a directive versus a regulation. Directives Mm -hmm. are open to interpretation in country, whereas regulations aren't. Um, So there's there's a whole level of complexity there. You had mentioned earlier on about um, the UK IoT thing. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting with that was, yes, the UK developed a code of practice for um, consumer IoT. Mm -hmm. And it's 13 principles um, that are, I, I think, pretty... They're pretty common sense principles for those who work in security and spend a lot of time on it. Like, it doesn't feel like a huge overreach to me. It feels like these are very solid principles. So after the UK developed that, they went and worked with Etsy, which is a European standards body. And they took those principles, the 13, and they basically built them out and refined them and talked more about how you would how you would do them. And they then made it what's called an EN. So it's Etsy Mm -hmm. EN. Uh, 303465 or 645. Numbers are hard. They're always so similar. So you always get it. And what the EN means is that basically Mm. each of the member countries of of the European Union basically then takes it on board in some way. And, and they, they ratify it in some kind of okay. local version, depending on what right. laws. It will, you know, so yeah. then as the EU looks at building legislation, they have this standard now that is a, it's a voluntary, right? Etsy's a, hmm. a voluntary, but they have it to look at and to, to draw on. And then what happened with that was India adopted it mm-hmm. and then Australia adopted it. Now the UK has actually built uh, the Product Security and Telecoms Infrastructure Act on top of it, mm-hmm. um, where they're not going to take all 13 principles, but they're taking the first three. As you said, one of them is don't use universal default passwords. Yeah. Um, and and so you see these things sort of propagate, right? And that's mm-hmm. what you want to have yep. happen because it actually does simplify the situation for those who are trying to adhere to them, but also do business internationally. So it's very good. Yeah. So I'm sorry, you, you asked about the task force and you've asked me a couple of times yeah. and I keep diverting um 
Yeah, so we formed the Ransomware Task Force in at the end of 2020 because, you know, we were sitting around and after we'd all learned to make bread and our own cheese, we thought, what should we do next? <laughs> um, I honestly don't know who these people are who had time to do that stuff, but I'm very envious of them. Um, in any case, uh, actually what happened was the, um, the Institute for Security and Technology, which is a West Coast think tank in the US, mm-hmm. sits on the sort of intersection of technology and national security when... Uh, there's a lot of ransomware attacks against hospitals. And I don't know if people know, but there's a pandemic. And so they basically went, that elevates this to being on a level of national security. Yep. Right? And they said, something needs to be done because what we're doing isn't working. And so they said, we're going to create this task force. And what was really savvy is they looked, if you think about the timing, they looked at the situation. Mm -hmm. They said, we've had a new administration come in this year. They've had their hands really full with everything going on but in spring of next year they've already signaled that they want to do more on cyber security which is mm-hmm. not hard because the bar had been set very low um <laughs> and in spring of next year they're going to be looking at what they should set as their priorities and if we can get a set of recommendations to them in their hands at that point then we've got a chance of them looking at them and factoring mm-hmm. them into their thinking so they pulled together, like the guy, Phil Reiner, who put it together, pulled together, you know, a group of a hundred of his closest friends. Um, uh, and it focused on four main work streams. So um, how do you deter and disrupt ransomware attackers? And how do you prepare, how do you help organizations prepare for and respond at scale? So this isn't yeah. about issuing a um the advice to like, hey, you should use multi-factor and you should have offline backups, right? This is about what governments can do. It was all about advice mm-hmm. for governments. And the task force, you know, I Michael Daniels said in the launch that we had all sprinted a marathon and it did feel like for all of us, mm-hmm. like we had a whole other job, like full-time job while we were doing it. Yeah. So we created mm-hmm. the thing in a sort of three-month window but we came out with these 48 recommendations aimed at governments around the world. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened, completely coincidental. The report landed and a week later, later Colonial happened. And as we've already talked mm-hmm. about, Colonial agency, yeah. right? It, like, boom, it, boom, it, boom. Was a, it was a whole kind of domino effect at that time. And it was, yeah. it was where, you know, of course, criminal organizations had started kind of, and, and ransomware as a service. And, you, you know, you had a yeah. lot more, um, let's say, criminal organizations out there who were moving into software crime, you know, yeah. and basically, you know, hiring in groups of engineers in order to get, you know, some type of, you know, financial kind of participation in, in, in the ransomware side. And uh, a lot of organizations have very much depended, you know, as they've tra- digital, digital transformation, have very much dependent on digital in order to conduct their business. Yeah. Um, and uh, absolutely, the, the impact is, is so severe. I mean, interestingly, last year has been a more quieter year i would say you know from my side and this response i've seen a, a bit of decline i i don't know what to do with sanctions or to do with devalue of of cryptocurrencies in some regards or um if you want my or, opinion and my opinion is unpopular because everybody would like to declare yeah. this a victory but i think it's got a lot more to do with russia invading ukraine than it has with anything else that's that's also my my opinion as well is i i believe that where they russia is a safe haven for many criminal so criminal gangs and they so have been. Ukraine. Yep. So and Ukraine and as well. Hackers, <laughs> a lot of their hackers are busy with other things right now. And yep. actually, it's not just the fact that their hackers are busy with other things. It's also the fact that 
I don't want to sound hyperbolic, mm. but we actually do kind of stand on the precipice of a of the potential for there to be a a pretty major war, right? Mm-hmm. And and actually, in that context, you you have to remember that one of the biggest things that allowed these groups to thrive for so long mm-hmm. was the fact that the governments that they operated under either couldn't prosecute them or mm-hmm. didn't because it actually it benefited them. It benefited them. It furthered <laughs> their political aims, right? Because, now, because it's have... it's the cyber mercenaries. It's the right, cyber is is you, you 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 know when when basically you're you're holding on a, on, a, on a leash, and yeah. ultimately you know you're allowing them to can carry criminal activities and be financially rewarded for it. You might even getting paybacks. You might be getting yeah. financial back you know uh, payment for that. Uh, but ultimately, when you want something done for you, you then basically you're giving them you know campaigns to carry out. Um, and this is where, you know, the whole cyber mercenaries thing is we know that a lot of the, the, you know, those well-known criminal, you know, ransomware gangs have been also carrying out other activities as well, whether giving right. access so, or, or. And, and so if you think about, you know, the, if you think about the run up to the invasion, right, at the same time that we were seeing, you know, mm-hmm. tanks amass at the border, we were also seeing Biden say to Putin, you got to stop attacking our critical infrastructure or else. And he delivered that message not once, but multiple times. Mm -hmm. And then we saw this thing where, like, Russia made some arrests around Reval and there were some takedowns. It was a PR PR, PR show. Yeah, we don't believe that. But here's the thing. The reason it matters isn't because Mm -hmm. it's going to meaningfully change the landscape. Mm -hmm. You're right. They were scapegoats. Um, They were sacrificial lambs. It isn't because it's meaningfully changing the landscape. It's because of what it's signaling about the fact that Russia wanted to demonstrate that it was willing to play ball, right? Mm-hmm. Which shows that actually the attacks against Western infrastructure has a perception uh, uh, place, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it plays in the way that the dialogue around these attacks was developing. And so I think, you know, when you're in a situation where escalation can happen, through just sort of um, uh, shoddy execution and escalation can be profoundly impactful, then I think you say to people, hey, you know, what you're doing, maybe focus a little bit more on Latin America for the time being and yeah. not so much on on people who are part of NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we've seen, right? We've seen a massive upscale in the level of attacks against Latin America. Yeah. Costa, Rica, Costa Rica was was a, the big one, but they, they had, uh, I think it was the pension scheme was hit, if I remember. Uh, they, uh, their entire, their, not just the pension yeah. scheme, they, yeah. they got absolutely hammered. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has massively impacted them. But I mean, not just them. Like, you know, I, I was at an event the other day and um, there was a chap there um, from the National Bank of Peru talking about being mm-hmm. here. I mean, you know, just hugely profound effect um, uh, uh, in many places in Latin America. And so I think mm-hmm. it isn't that it's gone away. It's that the, the, way, it's, it, the way it's being handled has shifted for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And what, so we'll just get onto the other side of the policy side. What, what's the direction forward? You know, where do we need? Where, where, where's the ideal place that you see? You know, where we get to when it comes to cooperation? Yeah. Um, 
Um, yeah, so I mean, I have this thing about the fact that I think that we're in the second generation of cybersecurity mm -hmm. as an industry, right? And I think that um, every generation looks at what the generation before did and thinks about how it can build its own path forward. And the reality mm -hmm. is like context changes, right? And what you do in reaction to that context changes. And the reality is that, that cyber risk is now too big and too costly and too um, impactful for our industry to remain the way it has been, where it's mm -hmm. been niche and and largely actually unbothered because people see us as so niche and, and so mm -hmm. complicated and they don't want to get involved. That's not going to fly anymore. What's yeah. going to happen is things are going to come our way like we're going to end up with professionalization of some kind being put on us. We're going to end up with regulation. Like These things are going to happen and we're, it's going to impact our industry very yeah. profoundly. We're going to move into the whole you know financial type of really kind of strict kind of you know boundaries and, and uh checks and balances uh, I, I guess that's you know regulate we've seen regulation coming um in yeah. certain areas but i think it's going to be and, and like look we like to pout, pout and mm. whine about it and say it's yeah. so unfair and no other area of technology has it i mean frankly i think we won't be the other area of only area of technology that has it i think yeah. ai will probably get it um but the yeah. reality is this um it actually professionalization is is not uncommon lots of industries mm -hmm. have it and it all comes down to the risk associated with what you do and the level of complexity right and so you know i kind of take a view of if it's good enough for doctors it's probably good enough for us um, yeah. i don't know why we think we're special in that <laughs> regard but what we have as an opportunity is we can either be part of the process or we can not right and and that yeah. means that we as a community we have to stop the infighting we have to stop like People in security come from a background of pointing out problems. Yeah. We're not always great at pointing out solutions or suggesting solutions or having the patience to be part of creating a solution. And, and we're also not great at listening in many times as well. What? You know, that's, <laughs> that's the other side is that we, we do have to listen to, you know, to you know, the, the industries and the businesses in order to, you know, how we can help rather than, you know, well, because we come at a very much a... a to your point is that with the enforcers, you know, we like to, here's, here's what we need to be doing. Um, but sometimes we, we sometimes are not as flexible as well. Yeah. I mean, going back to that original thing that I was saying at the beginning mm -hmm. about it's, it's such a crime to be non-technical in security. We have a habit of having a view that if somebody has mm -hmm. different experience to us, that makes them intrinsically less knowledgeable rather than just differently knowledgeable. You know, if I go and talk to somebody in the policy sphere and they're an expert on security, what, what am I doing there? I want mm -hmm. them to be an expert on policy, which is not something that I am an expert on, right? Like I'm not an expert on the mechanics of how you create law. And I think probably most people in security aren't really experts on that. But what they mm -hmm. are expert on is the piece of security that they work on or whatever they've got experience yeah. of. And if they can bring that to the table and we can get other people who have expertise in law together, then we can create something potentially very positive. So when it comes to looking at things like certifications for our industry, mm -hmm. We're the people who are going to be affected by them. So we're the people who should figure out which ones we like and which ones we yeah. should take forward, or it'll get thrust upon us. So I think, I mean, you know, in terms of where the future is going to go, my view is we all, everybody who works in security mm -hmm. has a choice to make about whether they want to play a role in determining their future or not. And I think if you yeah. do, it doesn't have to be massive changes. You don't have to suddenly decide you're going to do my job. Please don't. I, I would like to be able to continue to do my job. I don't want to compete with everybody. Um, but what you can do is go, 
what are the little things that I can do? Like, mm-hmm. how do I communicate with non-technical people? How do I communicate with people outside security? How am I teaching people to fish rather than, and I'm not talking fish with a pH. Um, <laughs> you know, don't go that far. That's too far. Um, but how do I, you know, rather than just being home IT for everybody in my mm-hmm. family and rolling my eyes and tutting and how making do get, yeah. comments. How, how do, do I... The, the society around is more secure. How do you, more thinking you said about at the beginning, it. you said we need better mm-hmm. communication. Yes. That's it. Like, how do we do a better job of having empathy and communicating with people in a way that rather than them going, oh, it's too complicated, it's too technical, and I don't want to know about it. Instead, they go, oh, that matters to me. Tell me yeah. more, because it matters to me. Yeah. And that's the thing I think everybody can can play a role in. Yeah. I think, it, you know, also, you know, from when we talk about Miko Hipton uh, talking about that we're no longer, you know, we're in a society, we're no longer just protecting computers anymore. We're protecting basically society. And I think that's the mindset we have to get into and start thinking beyond the scope of kind of where we were coming from in the past, that what we do has a much more society impact today than it's ever done before. Um, And it's not just a computer at the end of it, it's a service. And then that service could be, you know, keeping people alive. It could be providing electricity to people's homes. It could be, you know, funding the, the whole financial industry and you know, a lot of it we have to understand that it's no longer just a computer or a server this has basically societal impacts it's a service and we, we we're there keeping the lights on in many cases and we have to look beyond the code and look beyond our tacky kind of you know I'm, I'm a geek at heart but i always have to remember that at the end this is providing some type of function or some type of service i could not agree more and i think some people listening to this might feel like well i just want to do this as a job you know i don't want that responsibility on my shoulders and fair enough like that actually is right you can't judge people for that fair enough but the way i look at it is isn't it also an extraordinary privilege to feel that you personally can have an impact on society in that way and actually yes it's a heavy mantle to be a protector but it's also, it's an extraordinary thing to know that yep. that's what you do with your time is that you protect people, I think is incredible. So I, I basically say to anyone who spends their time doing that and gives their time up um, to protect other people that you guys are awesome and we appreciate it. Um, and, you know, keep digging in, find find the ways to make people care mm-hmm. about what you do. I think that's a fantastic note to, to start closing the podcast on. Jen, it's been it's been fantastic talking to you. And again, I've learned a lot of uh, things as well. As I mentioned, this is my this is my favorite part of the week is is getting to talk to awesome people. Um, so many thanks for spending the time. Any final words of wisdom uh, that you would like to? No, because we got. I've talked too much already, and I've taken too much <laughs> time. So I'm just going to leave it where it is and say thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Jen, for being on the podcast. Um, it's fantastic, and for the audience. I mean, really, you know, the perspective here is that, you know, at the end, it's all about being transparent and working together and finding ways that we can basically make sure that we communicate and have the, you know, common understanding of what we have an impact in the world's, you know, uh, digital society. So as it mentioned, you know, Jen's been awesome. Uh, for everyone on the podcast, again, tune in every two weeks for the 401 Access Denied. I'm the host of the episode, Joe Carson. It's been a pleasure. Stay safe, take care, and I'll see you again soon. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrary for Business by going to www.cybrary.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Delinea. Dicotic and Centrify are now Delinea, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit delinea.com.